Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and last week we looked at the promise of John the Baptist and what would be his miraculous birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as we saw, Luke connects Gabriel's announcement of John with the history of God's working through Israel in pretty incredible literary and intimate detail. Well, Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah sets up for an even greater announcement to Mary about Jesus, and it is just as connected and deep as what we saw last week. And what's so beautiful about these stories is on the one hand, they can serve as the text for simple songs like Away in a Manger, and you can understand clearly what these stories are about as a child. But as you grow in your depth of faith and knowledge of scripture, you can begin to see the literary connections that Luke or say in the Gospel of John, we saw that uh, last year, uh, you, you could see how deep the rabbit hole can go with what God has been doing throughout history, really since Genesis 1, in bringing about the redemption of his creation. And we certainly see that today. Well, we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. And while I'm not going to go really verse by verse through Mary's song, I'm going to tack it on because it's important and it relates to uh, the passage at hand. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful word about the announcement of your son, Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of the living God. We give you thanks for this time together meditating on this intricate and beautiful word, and we pray that it would penetrate down into our hearts and our minds and even our feet, that we might turn and follow you where you lead, just as your servant Mary followed you too. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke tells us in verse 26 that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Well, I think the sixth month here refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, which is mentioned as, again, a time marker in verse 36. So six months has passed between Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah and his appearance to Mary here in our passage. And Luke intentionally pairs Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel with Mary's encounter. And the reason is because John the Baptist's ministry as important as it is, and it is crucially important, is paired to and anticipates Jesus' ministry, which is even greater. So with Zachariah's encounter, Gabriel's identity is not revealed until after Zachariah expresses his doubts. Zachariah says, how shall I know this, which was a, a request for certainty, as in, how will I, I really know what you're saying is true? And in response, Gabriel reveals his name to Zechariah and then gives him a sign. He was struck mute until his son was born, which was both, well, an indictment of Zechariah's doubt, but also graciously gave him certainty. Here's a sign if you're having trouble believing. With Mary, Luke leads with Gabriel's identity up front, signaling that this birth announcement is even greater than what Zechariah was told. In Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel, Zechariah is in uh, the capital city of Jerusalem, serving in the holy place next to the holy, holies, holy of holies in the temple. And the temple, of course, was both the place where God met with his people, but also, in turn, it's the center of Israeli nationalism. So this is basically the most important spot in all of Israel. In Mary's encounter with Gabriel, she is in the backwater region of Galilee, which was really rife with Gentiles. And you see that throughout uh, Jesus's ministry. And it's, it's far from the centers of power and influence. So Zechariah was an ordinary priest, and he and his wife, even though they had really an impeccable priestly lineage, uh, they carried the cultural shame of being childless. Mary was an absolute nobody. She was a nobody. So we'd expect God to reveal his coming son in Jerusalem at the temple or in worldly centers of power like say Rome and yet God doesn't do this it's like how uh, Luke begins chapter 3 he writes in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So Luke mentions every single political heavyweight in the, the region, right? That's every heavy. That's every important person with real power at that time, and yet God's word doesn't come to a single one of them. It comes to John out in the wilderness. So already, we haven't even gotten to John chapter three, uh, Luke chapter 3. Already Luke is showing that there is a great reversal at work, one that, that Mary sings about in the Magnificat. In, in verse 40, 52, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's the difference between Tiberius Caesar and Mary. And we read in verse 27 that Mary was a virgin and most likely a teenager who was betrothed to Joseph, who was of the house of David. Now, in Jewish custom at this time, marriage was basically a two-step process that's similar to what we think of as an engagement and then the marriage itself. That Mary was betrothed to Joseph doesn't mean that she was merely verbally committed to him or had said yes to his proposal, though that's true. It, it meant that she was legally bound to him and he to her, and in a legal sense, they were, they were married. They were married, though they had not had the wedding yet. So typically there was about a year gap or so between a betrothal and the wedding day itself. So considering that, as you can imagine, Mary being pregnant before her wedding day would cause a scandal. And we get the idea uh, from John 8:41 that the accusation of sexual immorality against Mary dogged Jesus in his ministry, as in he was the product of sin. And so we, when we read in Matthew's account that Joseph wanted to divorce Mary quietly and not to shame her, we see just how hard the situation was for everyone involved. It also indicates just how faithful a young woman Mary was. Uh, when she said in response to Gabriel's news, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So Mary had some idea. She wasn't dumb. Mary had some idea, despite how wonderful this announcement was to her, about how hard things might be for her. And they would be. And yet she trusted her God. This is in contrast with Zechariah, who doubted what God revealed to him. Zechariah says, again, how shall I know this, which was an expression of his doubt that God could do what he said he would do. In comparison, Mary said, how will this be, which was an expression of wonder, not doubt. So Mary didn't doubt God would do it. She simply didn't understand how it would work. So put differently, I have full confidence, full confidence that God will raise his people literally from the dead. I have full confidence that Abraham, though he's, he's long since uh, been dust and his atoms have been scattered who knows where, that he will bodily be raised to life in the resurrection with his body. But I have no idea how that works. And I would love to ask God, how is that going to happen? Right? That's, that's what's in view there. Now, by pointing out that Joseph is of the lineage of David, Luke is pointing to the royal nature of Jesus' identity. Even with Joseph not being his actual father, Jesus would still come from the line of David because legally 
He was part of Joseph's family. This is why in Luke 3, Luke traces Jesus' lineage to David, but he keeps going further back, just as we see in, in Gabriel's words to Mary here. He traces it all the way back to Adam, the son of God, as Luke calls him. So Adam, too, had God as his father. And the point is that Jesus, while filled with the Spirit like John the Baptist, is greater. Greater even than David or Abraham or Adam. He is the Davidic king, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. He is a better Adam and the faithful son of God. But that it was a virgin birth, a clear link, a clear sign from Isaiah 7 and the sign given to Ahaz, a wicked king, it's indicative of not merely a spectacular miracle that goes well beyond aged or barren women conceiving and, and giving birth. It's indicative of new creation. It's indicative of new creation, of the restart of humanity through Jesus. Humanity will now have a faithful Adam and a son of God who can keep the covenant. Well, in verse 28... Gabriel greets Mary with, the greeting, with greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So unlike how Catholics have misunderstood and frankly twisted uh, this passage, this does not mean that Mary was full of grace and in turn can dispense grace to people. No, it simply means like what the angel indicates in verse 30, that God was showing kindness and grace to Mary. So what had Mary done to deserve this? Well, as her confusion over what the angel said to her indicates, nothing, nothing whatsoever. Just as Abraham had done nothing to merit God's attention and favor, so Mary had done nothing to deserve God's love and favor, let alone the, this privilege that she's being given. So if she had merited God's attention, if she was worthy of it, if she was holy and good all on her own, then it wouldn't be grace. It would be a payment. But no, it's, it's grace. It's grace. Gabriel tells her that she would conceive and bear a son, and his name would be called Jesus. Or as it, is, as it is reflected in both Greek and Hebrew, it's Yeshua, or as we would say, Joshua. And we talked about this two weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning again. Jesus is pictured as a new and superior Joshua. So whereas the first Joshua led the people of God into the promised land, which was really a, a living picture in anticipation of the coming redemption of the world, Jesus is now actually taking back the whole world from sin and death. So what Joshua looked forward to and did in part for Israel, now the new and superior Joshua is doing for the world. And as John pictures it in Revelation, what once was isolated to Eden will come to cover the whole earth, where heavens and the earth come together. Gabriel tells Mary this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So if John would be great before the Lord, which means he would enjoy God's presence and favor, Jesus is great in himself because he is the Son of God. So if John was a herald of the coming kingdom of David, Jesus is that king, and he will rule not just over Israel, but over all things. So what Jesus will do is not merely spiritual, 
And it's not merely about my individual life, though clearly there is something to that. It's so much bigger than that. He's taking back this world from the spiritual and worldly powers, and his actions are very much a real, this world, political event. So Jesus is never merely king of my heart. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, whether they recognize it or not. So if you take Gabriel seriously, and the promises of of the Davidic dynasty look forward to this moment, Jesus is the promised king and the heir of David who has come to administer real justice and righteousness on the earth, judging evil and wickedness, and in turn bringing life and flourishing to his people and the earth itself. That's why, for example, the flood and Noah rightly look forward to Jesus. That's why the judgment on Sodom rightly look forward to Jesus. That's why the Exodus, both the judgment on Egypt and her so-called gods, but the salvation of Israel and those Egyptians who wanted life with God, which many did, rightly look forward to Jesus. That's why the Israelite conquest of Canaan rightly look forward to Jesus. In each and every case, and we could take a lot of time to go through this, and I could show you, but in each and every case, evil would be dealt with. Perversion, like with the Nephilim, you know, the Goliath, would be destroyed, even as there was opportunity and invitation, like with Rahab and her family at Jericho, or Ruth the Moabite, to turn and find life with God. So, for good reason, the Exodus begins with Israel in literal slavery to spiritual and worldly powers and ends in worship and covenant with God around a symbolic Eden on Mount Sinai where a Redeemer King is interceding for his people in the person of Moses. All of that is looking forward to this moment. This is why Mary in her song commonly called that Magnificat, which just simply means my soul magnifies. So it's the first line in Latin when the the prayer or this has been put into Latin. So my soul magnifies the Lord. It begins with what God had done for Mary personally, recognizing the grace and mercy and kindness she had received from God. And then she turns. It never merely stays with the personal or the individual. She turns and she expands to speak of God's justice and his covenant faithfulness to Israel and in turn the world. And the basic idea is that what God has done for Mary this nobody, teenage girl. What God has done for Mary, he will do for Israel, and through Israel's Messiah, he will redeem the world. And Mary asks, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And as we've mentioned, this isn't doubt like with Zechariah. She doesn't ask for a sign or for proof, though Gabriel actually does give her a sign anyway. What she's expressing is wonder. It's wonder. And in response, Gabriel says this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, clearly, Gabriel doesn't explain the mechanisms of how this will work, as if we could understand them anyway, but rather explains what will happen in familiar Old Testament language about God's presence, especially 
as he was present with the tabernacle and then in turn with the temple. So like the Spirit of God at the outset of God's creative work, hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1, like the glory cloud that led Israel out of Egypt, that enveloped Mount Sinai, that descended on the tabernacle and again on the temple. This same God, through his spirit, would descend upon Mary, making her a temple of the Holy Spirit, where the Son of God would be formed into a new Adam. So if John the Baptist and his Levite parents represent really the end of the old covenant, complete with the end of the temple and the prophets, Mary is very much like Israel giving birth to the kingdom of God and the Messiah who will pour out his spirit on his people, bringing new creation with him. That's what Revelation 12 has in view. And what Mary enjoys in terms of the presence of the Son through the Spirit, Jesus in turn will give to all his people at Pentecost. So we too enjoy the presence of the Son of God literally within us through the Spirit. In fact, we took, what, 11 weeks walking through that doctrine. It's called union with Christ. Clearly, though, what Mary enjoyed was unique to her. She, she alone was the mother of Jesus, and for good reason, she can say, generations will call me blessed. She would have the privilege and the honor, and it's all gift, and the honor of, of bearing the Messiah, of knowing him uniquely in her body as a mother, of raising him from birth, of watching him grow, taking in and pondering his ministry, being confused by it even. And his death, she was a witness at his cross, and his resurrection, and his ascension. So despite how Catholics have misunderstood her, even putting her in the place of God at times, we do well to recognize in affirmation with Scripture just what an important witness, I mean, really one of the greatest witnesses to Jesus' life she is. Though Mary did not ask for confirmation, though, for a sign of how all this could be true, Gabriel gives her one anyway, and he tells her of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy and says, nothing will be impossible with God. So the God who made the heavens and the earth by his word through his spirit has brought forth a new Adam through Mary who would redeem the world in fulfillment of his promise to Eve. So just as God could bring forth all of creation by his word through the spirit, that's Genesis 1, let alone a child from an elderly barren couple so he could do this for Mary. And if she wanted confirmation, she need only go for a visit to her cousin to see proof that nothing is impossible with God. But if this is beyond belief for you, maybe consider how Glenn Scrivener puts it. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Or perhaps more poignantly, choose your God. See, Mary believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary sees herself in light of all this that had to be overwhelming, really incredible. She sees herself as a servant in the same way as she sees Israel as God's servant in verse 54 of the Magnificat. So again, like what we see with Abraham, what God is doing in and through for Mary, he is ultimately doing in and through and for Israel too. 
So Mary heads out to the hill country of Judah to go see the sign that Gabriel gave her. And as she entered the house and greeted her cousin, keep in mind the picture here. This is a newly pregnant teenager greeting her distant, elderly, pregnant cousin in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Well, when this happens, John the Baptist, who was filled with the Spirit in the womb, leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And as Alistair Roberts notes, this is almost exactly, almost exactly like David leaping before the Ark of the Covenant as it was coming to Jerusalem, the city of God's peace. So after 400 years of silence, so from Malachi to this moment in Luke, God had returned to Israel through his son who was in Mary. So she's very much like an Ark of the Covenant. And the Spirit of God moved in John so that, like David, he leaped with joy in his mother's womb before God's presence. Now, of course, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's literal presence with his people. And here, he is literally with his people in the womb of his mother. And his, his mother here, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, also filled with the Holy Spirit, very much like a prophet in a sense, she says this, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So that phrase, Elizabeth, blessed are you among women, is usually only one other time in Scripture, and it's very similar to what Deborah sings about J.L. in Judges chapter 5. J.L. was the woman who famously nailed a tent peg uh, through the wicked and serpent-like Sisera's head, if you, if you know that, that story. And J.L. was most blessed among women, that's what Deborah sings, for her courage. And here, Mary, the mother of the Redeemer, as Elizabeth sings it, as she makes the connection, is blessed because her son will finally and ultimately crush the head of the serpent. So through the Spirit, Elizabeth recognizes what's happening, that she's in the presence of the Redeemer and the King of Israel, that everything that was told to Zechariah was true, and in turn, that Mary, this faithful teenager, has believed the word of the Lord too. And it's such a fascinating moment. So where perhaps an ancient reader would expect these scenes to be dominated by the wise or the powerful or men, like with Moses and his birth, God works through faithful women. Faithful women, a reversal on Eve to bring about his purposes of life for the world. And the point, and this is always the point, this is always the point, is that God alone brings about the redemption of the world, and he does so in surprising and beautiful ways. I think we do well then to just take a note from Mary's song and to see two things as we end. First, God's eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me, and I know he watches you. If he cares for and loves nobodies like Mary or Elizabeth, and has been working out his plans from eternity through people just like that, and uses them for his purposes, then we know he does the same for us. Now, perhaps his purposes for us, not quite as grandiose, 
as being the mother of the Messiah, but still, his purposes for bringing about his kingdom still involve each of us, no matter how we may personally feel about that or see our own lives. I think this will be one of the most beautiful things that we encounter when we come face to face with our Lord, when he shows us how he used us, how he ministered through us, and we have no idea how his purposes were worked out and how beautiful that will be and how we will see how incredibly gracious he is to us. You know, all too often, and I certainly see this among pastors too, we think if we are not an influencer or popular or have a large microphone or whatever, that God's purposes for us are small or insignificant or nothing at all. But as Francis Schaeffer rightly taught, there are no little people. There are no little people. The world thinks that, but God does not. Now second, what I find so good about Mary is that she located her life in the bigger picture of God's redemption of the world and did this just as Luke does throughout his gospel. He wants you to see how this story is located in Israel's history and all the hopes and longings and promises of God that are coming to fruition right then and there. She does this by rooting herself in what God had already done for Israel and what he had promised to do. So in looking back to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel, which was, I don't know, roughly a thousand years earlier, she could make sense of what God was doing for her right then and there. So to put this into our own context, you know, the reason the church celebrates Advent is not because we're trying to recreate something or merely remember what happened. So this is, this is not a 4th of July celebration. No, it's like with the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of what Christ accomplished, and we do it until he comes. This is a living memory in which we look forward, even as we look back to what he has done and we live in light of it. That's why we pray, even so, Lord Jesus, come. So like Mary, we must see ourselves as an Advent people, looking back to God's mighty acts in Christ and looking forward to the second coming when he will bring new creation fully to bear on all things. We already enjoy some. We already have the Spirit, but we look forward to the resurrection. This is why, really, in a nutshell, we're called to live differently, to be a light to the nations, pointing back to what has already come and giving testimony to what is yet to come. More on this in the coming weeks. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this intricate and beautiful and detailed word that is worth pondering and meditating on. It's worth going back through the Old Testament and revisiting crucial passages and seeing how they all look forward to Jesus and find their meaning and their fulfillment in him. Lord, may our lives be just like that. May our lives be a fulfillment or find their fulfillment and find their meaning in him. May our daily lives, our ordinary waking moments, find their meaning and their completion in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.